Imagine if I invited you to my home to meet a friend. So come on over, there's someone I want you to meet. Not just a meet and greet type of situation, but I go on to explain that I want to get you to get to know this individual pretty well. But more importantly, I want you to hear what he has to say because he's really wise. He has a lot of insight into life, the Christian life to be exact. And I think that would change versus just meeting someone that's important to me versus staying for a while. Now imagine that this invite was not for you to just come over after church for a few minutes or even an hour, but to make yourself at home and stay for maybe a year, maybe two. I would imagine you'd have some questions. Who is this guy? And what makes him so important to you? And what makes him qualified to teach me not just for a few minutes, but for so long, for months on end? Well, you don't have to imagine. Because I'm actually doing that right now as we begin our study of the book of James. As I this morning invite you to join my family in my spiritual home to meet this man. To meet James and what he has to teach us. I'm going to answer those questions you might have. Who is he? Why is he qualified to teach us? This morning in a sermon that I've entitled, The Man, the Myth, the Ministry, which also happens to be the outline of our sermon. I'm going to tell you about the man. Who is James? Specifically, what do we know about his background? What is his ethnicity? What is his salvation story? What do we know about him from the Scriptures? Then I'm going to go into the myth. Although typically referring to something that is untrue, the word myth could also refer to a story or an explanation of something that is unique or even supernatural. And I believe you will find that as with all of our lives, the ministry and salvation of James is supernatural. In that section, the myth, I will talk about what we know about James, not directly from Scripture, but from church history. And then finally, the ministry. In this point, I will not talk about the entirety of his ministry, which I will cover briefly in our first point in talking about James the man. But in the point entitled The Ministry, I'll cover what exactly is this epistle known as the epistle of James? Who is he writing to? Why is he writing to them? And so, if you like a proposition, as I usually give you for all of it, It would be something to the effect of three background elements of the book of James. Three background elements of the book of James. The man, the myth, the ministry, which we all get from verse 1 of James chapter 1. Turn there with me as we begin this study of the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 1. In common introductory fashion, he says, James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Let's look at James the man. The man. The author of this book, this epistle, this letter is James. From the Hebrew name Yaakov or Jacob, as we see in the Old Testament, James was born to a Jewish family which would explain why he has such a common Jewish name, similar to the name John, for example, in American English. As well, it explains the fact that this book, this letter, is written to not just all believers, but his specific original audience is Jewish believers, that is, Jews who converted to Christianity. And we'll talk more about that later. Of course, as with all of Scripture, it is for all believers everywhere, but the specific people he was writing to 2,000 years ago are Jewish converts to Christianity. Although well-known because of this book, of course, he has a letter that is uh, canonized in the New Testament. We know who James is. But James is also from a well-known family. One of his brothers, Jude, is the author of the book of Jude in the New Testament. Perhaps you have heard of his parents. Uh, 
Their names are Joseph and Mary. And you have definitely heard of his most famous half-brother. We know him as the Lord Jesus Christ. Half-brother because Jesus was biologically born of Mary, but not Joseph, whereas James was born of Mary and Joseph. We know this epistle was written by this particular James, uh, the only other contender, if you want to put it that way, from the Scriptures that could possibly have written James or uh, this book that was written by James, a James, was the James of the original twelve. The original twelve disciples of Christ. Remember, he was known as James, the son of Zebedee. His brother John, the sons of Zebedee, were both uh, were two of the twelve disciples of Jesus Christ. But we also know that both of them were martyred. They were killed for their faith before this letter was written. And that's recorded for us, the martyrdom is, in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. And so we know that James was written by the half-brother of Jesus, James. Now, one of the interesting facts about this individual is that he didn't believe at first. In other words, when Jesus was alive and walking on earth, James did not put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not believe that his brother was the Messiah. Now, on a relational point of view, we kind of get that. We understand that. To grow up with someone and one day he declares that he is the Son of God, which is the ever history long title for the coming Messiah, that your brother that you grew up with says, hey, I'm God and you need to put my, your faith in me to have eternal life. I'm the one that we learned about in the synagogues. I am he. I have come. So we understand that that would have been strange just to see his brother and say, oh, this is the Messiah. I don't think so. In fact, none of his brothers believed at first. We know that James came to faith after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. We are told in John 7, 5, as I mentioned, that all of Jesus' brothers rejected him in the beginning. Mark 3, 21 says that Jesus came and his own people did not just reject him, they thought he had gone insane. Who would his own people be? Of course, the people in his small village, but obviously that would include his relatives, his family as well. So James did come to faith, of course. He believed after the resurrection. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7, Jesus appeared to him post-resurrection. And if you recall, a, a few weeks ago when we covered that uh, passage in 1 Corinthians, I mentioned that that probably had something to do with his conversion that his brother showed up post-resurrection and thus proved that he indeed was the Messiah. Regardless, from there, James's faith and influence on the church grew exponentially. Upon his conversion, he started becoming one of the most influential men in the history of the Christian church. Now, in his report of how he received the right hand of fellowship, the Apostle Paul, in Galatians 2.9, lists James as one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. This is especially significant because the Jerusalem church was not your typical local church. It's a concept, I'm about to share with you a concept that may be hard for us to grasp because that doesn't exist in Protestant Christianity today. But back then, you understand that Christianity was a new religion. And so there were people that were going out. The people that Jesus himself sent out are still going out and preaching the gospel. They're planting churches. They're sharing the gospel. People are being converted. And Christianity is at the, the very just uh, roots, the beginnings of its spread. And because of that, again, we don't have this today, but at that time, 
there was essentially a home base. There was a mothership, the headquarters of the Christian church, and that, of course, was the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus instructed his disciples to preach the gospel to the entirety of the world, but to start in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of it all. It was the hub and the center of Judaism, and thus it was the hub and center of where all the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy was to take place, which centered around the coming of Jesus Christ. Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish and Christian world at that time. It's where it all started, and it is where everything flowed out. And to prove the point, it was in Jerusalem that Pentecost took place, where the Holy Spirit came down and entered into the followers of Jesus Christ. It was also where the Jerusalem Council took place, and where, incidentally, James had the final word in settling the matter of whether Gentiles had to be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved or if salvation was indeed by justification, by faith alone. That's where the, the uh, Christian elders and apostles got together, debated, and decided upon that, and that we have in Acts chapter 15. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15 so we can take a look, not at the whole thing, but a little bit of what happened at this very significant Jerusalem council. Now, as you turn there, I'm going to give you a quick summary, but I want to preface it with this. Justification by faith alone was a teaching of Jesus Christ. We don't believe that because they decided on that at the Jerusalem Council. That was not decided upon by followers of Christ. It was instituted by God Himself. It was just there was this uh, confusion because many of the new Christians were formerly Jews who had uh, fulfilled the coming of the Messiah in Jesus Christ and put their faith in Him. And so they still had a lot of Jewish thinking which was a good thing because their understanding of who Jesus was and is came from their upbringing and understanding of the Old Testament. We don't disregard the Old Testament. And so there was some confusion, and it was in the Jerusalem Council where they said, no, 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 remember what Jesus said, and re remember what the Old Testament prophets said. It's not about circumcision. It's not about the Mosaic Law. It's not about just Jews. It is for the entire world. And so it wasn't that they decided on justification by faith alone. That was already established by God. It was that they clarified and said yes, because they were in the midst of these, um, especially Barnabas and Paul and Peter. They were in the midst of going out and witnessing the Gentiles. So they had to clarify, like, what do we tell them? So let me give you a rundown of Acts 15, tell you why the Jerusalem Council was so significant in the history of Christianity, in the history of the church, and of course the history of the inclusion of Gentiles, that is non-Jews, in the church. So Paul, what had happened at this time, Paul and Barnabas, they had gone out on a missionary journey. Many Gentiles, again, that's just a, a word for anyone who's not Jewish in terms of their uh, ethnicity, their birth, many Gentiles had come to faith in Christ. So again, where do they always come back to? Home base, the headquarters, which is Jerusalem. And so they come back here. Of course, the church welcomes them. All the elders and apostles who are in Jerusalem are coming to hear about everything that the Lord is doing through their ministry. And Paul and Barnabas start sharing and what they are sharing specifically is about all the stories, all the signs and wonders, all the wonderful things God has done among all the people with the gospel, but specifically the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Now remember I said there was some confusion, right? There were still some Jewish thinking. Uh, there was some new Christian thinking. A lot of this was, was still being kind of brought out in their understanding, 
Understand that the New Testament wasn't written at that time. So they were going by Old Testament prophecies and the teachings of Jesus Christ and now the teaching of the apostles and then through the superintending of the Holy Spirit as the New Testament was written, they were uh, getting this inspiration to write down more. And so we're still at a stage where there's some intermingling of the two. And so naturally when there's this large group of people coming to hear Paul and Barnabas share about their missions. Among them were some Jews. And believe it or not, among those that were standing there in the Jerusalem council were the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees were there. We know of the Pharisees because Jesus condemns them over and over again in the Gospels because of their legalism and because they're just heaping these these legalistic man-made requirements on God's people, the Jews. So there were some Pharisees there and they start speaking up. And they say, no, 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 no. You can't just tell them to believe in Jesus Christ. You can't just tell them that the Messiah has come. If they want to follow God, if they want to believe in Yahweh and be followers of Yahweh, the Lord, they need to be circumcised like we are. We've been doing this for centuries. This is how you have a relationship with God. And so these people are saying you need to be circumcised. And these Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas, you need to go out and tell them they need to obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Naturally, this leads to a debate. Because the Christian elders and apostles are like, "Mm, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure Jesus fulfilled that and said we are no longer under that burden. Peter speaks first, starting in verse 7. And he basically reminds everyone that God looks at the heart, not at the actions, and has declared that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile when it comes to faith. He then goes on, just summarizing for you guys here, that God has given the Holy Spirit to both. And so there's no earning of salvation. There's no fulfilling of law that God has given faith and the Holy Spirit to Jews and Gentiles. Then in Acts 15, verse 10, he says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, he says, there are these new believers in Christ... And you Pharisees are telling me, telling us, that the way we're going to proceed with establishing the church is by heaping on these burdens of the Mosaic law, which you and I, Pharisee, could not even fulfill. And even Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses himself could not fulfill. How does this make any sense? Why would you foist it upon those who are non-Jews when God has clearly said it is not necessary for salvation and it is impossible to fulfill as you Pharisees are here debating trying to fulfill it? You can't do it. He finishes in verse 11. He says, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So he says, We're saved by grace, not by the law. Jews, fellow Jew. And so the Gentiles must be as well. This silences the people. Paul and Barnabas continue telling them all the amazing things they call signs and wonders that God did through them amongst the Gentiles. And then finally, James, the writer of the letter we're embarking on, speaks up. And I want to read to you all that he said in Acts fifteen thirteen through 23. Acts fifteen thirteen through 23. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Now remember, James is a Jew. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. And here he quotes the prophecy. After these things I will return 
and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Back to James in verse 19, no longer quoting. He says, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and descend to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. James has the final word and they say, okay, they send him out. No Mosaic law, no circumcision needed, justification by faith alone, as God has said and told us and included the Gentiles, go preach the word. And here is James with the final say and thus the final one deciding, let's send them out. Let's establish this church as Jesus Christ commanded us. We can see why James became a leader of this flagship church, and we can see how much influence he already had at this time. We know that he eventually became the leader of the Jerusalem church, Acts 12.17, just a small snippet, indicates that whenever there was big news in Christianity coming back to the headquarters, they would say, you've got to tell James. James needs to know. And so, not just the church leader, the leader of the home base of the church at that time. It is because of this that after Paul and Peter James plays the most significant part in the early church. We know he held this position until 62 AD, at which time he was martyred for his faith. In James 1.1, we can see why he was used so mightily by God. It's the same reason that God used many of the men we read in the New Testament so mightily, and it is simply this because he considers himself, and I quote, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't call himself a leader. He doesn't call himself the head of the Jerusalem church. He does not say that I have authority to write to you in this letter because I am Jesus' brother and not because he's Mary's son. It's because he is a bondservant, literally a slave owned by another who exists solely to serve his master. Contrary to the ways of the world, it is submission and humility that makes one great and effective in the kingdom of God. Submission and humility. Not pride, not self-focus. Calling yourself a bondservant, recognizing who you are, not just as a leader of the Jerusalem church, not just as the one who wrote a New Testament book, but as any believer is to do, it is a humble recognition of who you are before the Lord and what you have committed your life to. It is a slave, literally. A slave who has no personal freedom, but is completely under the control of the Master. Everything he possesses is his master's. He was essentially a piece of living property to be used as his master desires. In a gross and negative way in the history of our country, you understand why that title was given to certain people. In a wonderful, beautiful way as slaves of Jesus Christ, all of those things are true, but with love, with joy, with grace, with mercy, 
We are owned by God and nothing we have is ours. It all belongs to Him. We are in the truest, purest, Roman Empire sense, slaves of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but there is nothing else I would rather be. It's the same title Paul uses of himself in several of his letters, Romans 1.1, Philippians 1.1, Titus 1.1. And here's another bonus, especially when someone becomes as prominent as Peter or Paul or James. By using this title, especially in introducing themselves in an epistle, they divert the focus off of themselves and onto the one they serve. We are all bondservants. If you are a believer, you are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And through our bondage to God and Jesus, we have a special relationship in that we are possessed by God for His service. It is a title and relationship when we look at the Scriptures that is used of the nation of Israel. It is used to describe their leaders, Joshua, David, Moses, It is used to describe the prophets. It is used to describe Christians and Christian leaders. It is used to describe Jesus Christ. So what a privilege it is that that title, bondservant, is also used to describe us, Christian. As believers... Our goal is to be perfect in every way as desired by God. Our ultimate role model and example to follow, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But as we look around the church, not just our local church today, but believers everywhere and believers who have lived before us, we also have practical, real-life examples of those who are pursuing godliness, holiness, and Christlikeness. And it is okay and it is actually good to want to learn from them, be inspired by them, to emulate them as they follow Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul set that standard in 1 Corinthians 11.1 when he said, Corinthians, Christians, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. It is good to want to be like James. It is good to be like, want to be like your discipler in this church so long as it is because they in that particular attribute or characteristic are trying to be like Christ. Here's my point. There's a lot we can learn from James and his life. Yes, he was specifically and specially appointed and gifted by God for a unique time in the history of the church. But do you understand that so are you? So are you. Christians may not read your letters in the Bible, but by virtue of the fact that God is sovereign and that he has saved you, you are specifically chosen for a unique place in church history to do a unique ministry. I don't know what that is for all of you. For some of you, I have an inkling, but I don't know if that's for the rest of your life. I don't know what your ministry is to be behind closed doors, outside of Sunday mornings, away from the small groups, but we have all been chosen and placed for a specific ministry. We are bondservants of Jesus Christ. And over the next several months, we are going to have ample opportunity to learn from what James says. But this week, this morning, take some time to reflect and learn from who James was and what he did. Something to keep in mind is that in James, we will read a lot of encouragement, instruction, but also admonishment and warning in this letter. And this type of authority with which he writes and the authority that we have seen so far in his life and ministry in the early church of the church of Jerusalem, this is so important, has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that he is Jesus' brother. Nothing. Zero. Does not matter. But it has everything to do 
with his calling and his obedience to that calling as a Christian and in his calling into specific ministry in his life. It's the same for us. It is not about who you know or who you are. It is not about if you grew up in the church. It doesn't matter if you're the pastor's best friend or the elder's child. It doesn't matter who you are ethnically, socially, even within the church. It is about who you are, Christian, and what you choose to do about that. If I may put it a different way, you are a Christian. Now go do something about that. You're a Christian. So act like it. Well, that's James the man. Speaking of being a Christian and doing something about it, let's move on to see what church history has to tell us about this godly man to our second element of the book of James, the myth. Again, this is not false information as in mythical but what we know from church history, history and not directly from the Scriptures, as with much of history and especially ancient history, there are differing accounts sometimes. And so we may not know for sure what the exact details are, but history tells us a lot. We do know for a fact that because of his holy life, James was known as James the Just. Or James the Righteous One would be another translation in English. James the Just. So if you've ever read some uh, Christian books and uh, there's a reference to James the Just, it is this James, the writer of James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And this title, even among the Jews, he was known as that. He just basically was known as James the Just in that community. This flowed out of his life of righteousness, his life of faith and patience, obedience and prayer and man did this man pray it is that last one prayer is how he got not his title but his nickname which some of you may be familiar with and that is camel knees you've heard that term before of someone who prays a lot he was the first see james lived a very austere life and part of that was long hours on his knees in private, worshiping and praying to the point that his knees were bruised and scarred so that they were rough like that of a camel. Camel knees, because he prayed so much. And what a great tidbit into his true worship and the reality of who Jesus Christ is he didn't still see him as his brother. I would challenge any of you to spend hours on your knees singing praises, talking to any one of your siblings in your mind. You just couldn't get past 10 seconds unless James was truly converted and truly worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about his death. Regarding his death, there are two widely accepted accounts. Two of those accounts are quoted by a man known as Eusebius. Now, Eusebius is known as the father of church history. Lived a couple hundred years after James did, but obviously a lot of this would have been passed down through oral tradition as much of our uh, history is. Now, the first account of his death comes from Josephus, whom Eusebius later quotes. And Josephus is probably, if you're familiar with any of these names, would be a name that is more familiar to you. He was an ancient historian that lived at the time of James, and he is used widely by Christians today for information about the early church. And his account was simply that there was a new high priest that came into power, new Jewish high priest. And he took the opportunity to get rid of this threat to Judaism and he had him stoned. It's a simple account and actually kind of blends into the more accepted account, which I'm about to give you. 
But as background for this, you need to understand, despite the fact that there were some Pharisees there at the Jerusalem Council, there was still an animosity towards Christianity among the Jews. The animosity towards Jesus Christ from the Jews that drove them to seek His death and crucify Him did not end with that death. They hoped it would have because they thought that would be the end of it. But His followers proceeded to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and convert many. And many of those converts were from Judaism. And so there was a growing, not a shrinking after Jesus' death, a growing displeasure among the Jews toward Christians, which is why many of the early Christians, including the apostles, were martyred, were killed for their faith, including James. They were still killing people. They didn't just stop at Jesus. They were killing the followers of Jesus Christ. Now there's a second account of James' death, which is, given to us by Clement of Alexandria. Probably another familiar name to some of you. He is considered a church father. He was born shortly after James's death, but this account, also quoted by Eusebius, who is known again as the father of church history, um, is considered by Eusebius as the more accurate of the two accounts. According to this account, because James's life was strictly obedient to Jesus Christ. And you have to understand that if you are a well-known Jew and you've just converted to Christianity, not in our day, okay, I think it would look very different in our day, but back then, okay, you're, you're still with the same people, your family's still Jewish, it's a small community, you can observe someone's life from a day-to-day basis, And so you have to admit, from an external perspective, a lot of the Christian obedience, which flows from the Old Testament and is revised in the New Testament, looks like Old Testament law. And a lot of what we believe in and what we preach is based on two-thirds of our Bible, the Old Testament. And so there were some Jews, Jewish leaders, that thought James was still strictly adhering to the Mosaic law and in fact missed the part that he was now a follower of Jesus Christ. Because of that, on the Passover, huge Jewish celebration, many, many Jews would be coming to the temple. They said, James, can you go to the top of the temple and encourage the Jews out in the courtyard here in the temple about who Jesus Christ is. They were hoping he would say Jesus Christ is not the Messiah. See, they wanted him to go up there and say, yeah, tell them about your commitment to the Mosaic Law and circumcision and all those things and convince all of these people to stop listening to Peter and Paul and Barnabas and these Christ followers. And so he does that. He climbs up to the pinnacle of the temple. And so from down below, they prompt him. And you'll notice, I'm going to quote, uh, going to quote Clement of Alexandria here. You'll notice that even they referred to him as James the Just or James the Righteous One. From this account, they yell out, O Righteous One, in whom we are able to place great confidence... The people are led astray after Jesus, the crucified one. So declare to us, what is this way, Jesus? See how they're setting this up? We can trust you. You're the righteous one. And people are being led astray. So they're hoping he's going to agree with them. James responds. Picture this, okay? Thousands of people he's yelling down. Why do you ask me about Jesus, the Son of Man? He sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power and He will soon come on the clouds of heaven. Not quite what they were expecting. In their anger and embarrassment, the Pharisees start shouting, Oh, oh, the righteous one is also in error. But by then it was too late because what James had said riled up the crowds 
And the oh, oh, the righteous one is in error is drowned out by the crowds already chanting, as we have seen before in the Gospels, Hosanna to the Son of David in praise of Jesus Christ. So the Pharisees are mad and embarrassed. They climb up to the top of the temple and they just shove him off. Hurts him. Doesn't kill him. Instead, he gets up on his camel knees and prays like his brother, I beg of you, Lord God our Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. The Pharisees, hoping to have already killed him by throwing him off the pinnacle of the temple, start stoning him. If you're not familiar, it was an Old Testament uh, form of punishment where you just literally hurl stones at someone uh, with the goal of severely maiming them or uh, in many cases, trying to get one hard enough on the head that they just die. It's a type of, it was a type of capital punishment back then. They start stoning him, throwing rocks at him. One of the priests jumps up and says, Stop! What are you doing? The just is praying for you. Finally, a fuller, which was a name for an ancient a launderer, someone who cleans laundry, took one of the clubs that he has. If you know, in, in some countries they still do this. Part of the cleaning process is they beat dust uh, out of large uh, pieces of fabric. And so he used one of those, took one of those clubs that he uh, would use to beat clothes, smashes James on the head and instantly kills him. And that is how James died. So according to church history, we do gain a lot of information about his faithful, righteous life of prayer, of holiness, and even to the last breath, his desire for the salvation of others. And incidentally, we see account after account after account of martyred early Christians, including the apostles, who did very similar things praying with their last breath that God would forgive those people, worshiping God. Even later on, uh, hundreds of years later, people burned at the stake singing Amazing Grace, different hymns as their flesh peeled off their bodies. It's a faith that we can aspire to. But finally, we've seen the man, the myth. Let's look at the ministry. The ministry. What is the book of James all about? Look at the second part of verse 1. He says, To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. This is an epistle. Fancy word for a letter. He wrote a letter to some individuals that he addresses here. We know that this epistle was written between 44 and 49 A.D., which, contrary to what many people believe because of the order of your Bibles, is actually the first New Testament book that was ever written. It's the earliest book. Um, this was written before the Gospels. Actually, why the Gospels were written were because the eyewitnesses uh, of Jesus' life and teaching and ministry were all being martyred or dying of old age, and so we need to write this down before we die because we were there. So that's why the Gospels were actually written later uh, chronologically in uh, the actual timeline of the world. James is the oldest New Testament book that we have. And he is writing, of course, from Jerusalem, where he lives and serves. Although, as with all of the New Testament, it's applicable to all believers, this letter did have a specific original audience. Uh, similar to the 1 Corinthians, we learned, we learned a lot from 1 Corinthians, but originally Paul wrote it to the believers in the ancient church of Corinth. This letter is written, and we're told right here, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. You say, that's strange, that sounds very Jewish, and indeed, you're right. This letter is written to the diaspora, which is what they're known as. Known as the dispersion or the diaspora, it is the Jews, described as the 12 tribes, who are dispersed abroad. That word abroad just means living in another country, right? So you say, oh, where is so-and-so living now? He's living abroad. Oh, he's living in China. 
someone who's from China who's living in China, you would not say they're living abroad, right? It's a term that you're referring to someone who's living outside of their home country. That phrase 12 tribes, of course, refers to Jews, the 12 tribes being the people who descended from the 12 patriarchs in Genesis, reflecting the origins of Israel. All ethnic Jews are descendants of one of the 12 tribes. That phrase 12 tribes is simply an expression that means all of Israel or the Jewish people. Now, through the course of Israel's history, you know this to be true, not just from the Old Testament, just, but even just from secular history, that they were heavily uh, persecuted. They went through a lot in their history, a lot of exile. We know of the Assyrians. We know of the Babylonians in Old Testament times. But in James's day, there was also a lot of persecution of Jews because of their conversion to Christianity. The, Jew, the, the, the Jewish religion was a powerhouse. We see even in Jesus' day, even in the gospel, how powerful this religion had become, especially in Jerusalem and Palestine and those areas in the Middle East. And so for someone to convert from Judaism to Christianity, you're heavily persecuted. You're all of a sudden on, you are a fellow brother Israelite to you are now on the we are free to martyr you list, okay? It was a huge, huge deal. I can't even think of anything where that would be the case here. The only thing I can think of that you would be familiar with vaguely uh, in just from the news is uh, a student of mine, praise God, in the seminary I taught at in Albania, he never went to his hometown. We're in the capital city. He never went to the hometown. I said, well, how come you never go back to your hometown? Because he said, you know that I was a, a teacher. Uh, I was a, a Muslim teacher. I was a leader of Islam in my, in my town. And if I go home to my town now, because they know I've converted to Christianity, and what's more, I'm studying to become a pastor, it's just what they do. My best friend will be like, hey, good to see you. Florence, welcome back. And then he would have to go to the mosque and say, Florence is back, we need to kill him. You've heard of stories like this. That's what it would have been like for the Jews who were converted. Death is not necessarily absolute for them, but it still would have been a possibility and life would have been extremely difficult for them. And so there was great persecution which led many of those converts to scatter out of their homeland and now they are known as the dispersed or the diaspora is the official uh, title. So if you ever read about the diaspora, it will be a capital D. This is the, the proper noun for these people that are living now in another country. There are a lot of Jews living out at that time living outside of Palestine because of the different, different captivities and exiles throughout their history. They just started there and then their generations born there who James is writing to are the ones who fled because they are going through very difficult times. If you're familiar with James, you see, you know he talks about trials and wisdom right off the bat. This is why. They had to flee their hometowns, their families, everything they knew because they were following Christ. And so the dispersion simply referred to Jewish Christians that lived outside of Palestine. And at this time in Jewish history, there are generally two groups of Jews. The Palestinian Jews, they were mainly farmers at this time, and there were those who were living outside of Palestine who were known as those in the diaspora. These were mainly city dwellers or traders. Now those living at home in Palestine would speak Aramaic, which we know Jesus spoke as well, and then the dispersion uh, would speak either Greek in the west or Arama Aramaic and Syriac in the east. Uh, this is why if you ever hear of someone who's getting their Ph.D. in the Bible or something, they would need to learn these languages. This also explains why at Pentecost and Acts 2, you have Jews who speak various languages based on where they were born. You hear someone speak up and say, they are speaking in the language that we learned from where we were born. So this would have been the scattered Jews from earlier on where they were born uh, in different places. Okay? 
Now we know that James is writing to believers due to his frequent reference to the phrase, my brethren, as well as, of course, the content of this letter. And by addressing them as the dispersed, we know these believers are Jews who live outside of Palestine. So again, his primary audience, Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine who fled because of the persecution of their faith. That alone is going to help explain a lot of why he writes what he writes in the book of James. Then finally, at the end of the verse, he closes his greeting with the word greetings. It's a common greeting of the time that literally meant rejoice or be glad. And like the common greetings that are made holy that we saw last week, we know that this would have been, on James's part, more than just something that was culturally, culturally appropriate or acceptable. James truly wants to help these believers rejoice despite the fact that they are poverty-stricken because of their fleeing, despite the fact that they are at risk of death and persecution all the time. He wants them to rejoice, which is why he says, consider it all joy my brethren, when you encounter various trials, as we will see soon. So, that's James. The man, the myth, the ministry. Hopefully that gives you a good backdrop for what we're getting into over these next uh, many months, probably a year or more. He writes, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the life of James and for this journey that we are to embark upon. Thank you that even in the seemingly mundane uh, sort of academic details of who James is and the dispersion, you have given us much to think about. I pray especially that you would help us to reflect on whether our lives reflect the reality of being slaves of our Lord Jesus Christ and what that means and how we can excel still more. Thank you for the example of James and his faithfulness in pursuing holiness and righteousness and seeing his boast and honor being in the fact that he is a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and not in the fact that he was biologically related to you. I pray, Father, that we would grow in our understanding over these next weeks and months as we learn from James, ultimately learning from you. Open our hearts to what you have for us. Teach us much. Grow us much. Change us drastically for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.